Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. According to Wikipedia, illusory superiority is a cognitive bias whereby individuals overestimate their own qualities and abilities relative to others. This is evident in a variety of areas including intelligence, performance on tasks or tests, and the possession of desirable characteristics or personality traits. This may explain why so many students believe they have something to offer their professors. It may also explain why, for all their supposed knowledge, the elite of the church and Roman Corinth were absolutely clueless about the gospel. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 110 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have arrived at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that puts us halfway through the book. It's a short chapter, so before we start, Richard and I thought it'd be important to talk a little bit about terminology and the words that we use to characterize or to identify the opponents that we construct for the podcast. Right. A lot of times we use the term Western, Western thinking, Western thought. And anti-Westernism, Westernism isn't something that's geographically bound. I think that's one of the problems with that term. It's a mode of thinking that you can find on every continent on the planet and has been there for a long, long time. The unique aspect that is germane to this chapter that we're looking at now is the tension between community and consumerism and how ever since urbanization happened, communities have been broken down for the sake of earning cash. People, instead of being farmers, want to earn money. Instead of creating their own food, they buy their food. And the communities begin to fall apart as cities are created and more and more people move to the cities. And then a consumer culture develops from that. Wherever those cities develop, whether they're developing in Asia or Africa or Europe, you know, now we have 24-7 grocery stores or pharmacies. We didn't used to have those. Go a couple hundred years back, you didn't have stores. You only had your neighbor. And if you needed help with food or with medicine or with an emergency, you didn't call 911. You didn't go to the 24-7 market. You went to the neighbor and asked, what can you do to help me? Fast forward 50 years ago, grocery stores were not open on the weekends or open on Sundays. And if you needed something, you went to the neighbor. You know, I need a couple eggs to finish this cake. So you went to the neighbor for eggs. Now, rather than having the relationship with the neighbor and saying, hey, can I get a couple eggs? You get in your car, you drive to the store, you buy eggs, use your money, 
give that money to a stranger, get those eggs from a stranger and bring them home and never talk to your neighbor. This is how capitalism and consumerism function to replace community bonds. Well, when you have a communal society in which people are a part of each other's lives and you are not living in an economy that demands the monetization of everything, you can share with your neighbor. If you live on a farm and you eat the produce of your farm, if it's a good season, you have enough food and you don't have to go out and figure out ways to make money with everything else that you do. You might be someone who's a good carpenter who wants to make a chair for a friend because you love them or you want to do something nice for someone, but we've come to a point in time where if you have time to make a chair, there's no way you're going to make that chair without charging somebody for it because you no longer live in a society where your needs are met by community. It's every man for himself, so everything is monetized. Even when people do things for a church or a nonprofit, they want credit for it, they want some value assigned, they want a tax receipt because that's the system. Now, to your point, this has always been a part of the human condition. The key is that for the first time, to my knowledge, this attribute of the human condition, which everyone has understood to be problematic, has been lifted up as a virtue because it becomes an engine of a cash economy and it subverts everything. This is at the heart of what we critique as Westernism or Western consumerism. Now, when you bring this problem into the domain of biblical studies, you have a huge dilemma because scripture is systematically tearing down the individual, tearing down the ego of the individual in order to build up community. And the first front in that war for the New Testament is the teacher-disciple relationship. Which is also, in scripture, the father-son relationship. It's a perfect place to emasculate and to deconstruct the human ego. But it doesn't work in our society. It's completely dysfunctional because of consumerism. Because the progressives are self-righteous and go on and on about how teachers can learn from students too, which I reject. And everyone's going to roll their eyes and say, how can you reject that? Are you saying that all your students are idiots? No. I'm saying that all of my students are irrelevant, just as I am irrelevant. And that's the message you're rejecting. You're fine telling me that the teacher is not important, but when the gospel tells you that the student is not important, everyone gets offended. The teacher has a particular role in the community. And some people want to teach without being the teacher because the teacher has a burden when he has to teach. I heard a fantastic story, a man who grew up in Sierra Leone. When he was a boy, there were hardly any books. The only books that were there were at the teacher's house. If you wanted to read a book, you had to be on good graces with the teacher who would let you, if you were good, come and read his books. And if you were very good and were very responsible, you could even take a book home. And if you were not good and you were not good at school, the teacher would show up at your house and talk to you and look around and wonder why the homework is not getting done. The teacher would come to your house. This is not a fun job. I'm going to spend my evening going and yelling at my students. I'm going to spend my evening having dinner with students who don't want me to be there. 
My children listen to me at home. No. I'm more than content sharing the wisdom that I received from my teachers with just my children if I'm selfish. But I'm not selfish. I'm willing to put it out there and I'm willing to be critiqued and to deal with all the emotional baggage of all of these consumers who want to come and give me feedback about what they'd like to see on the shelf at St. Elizabeth. That's, I think, a very good word is feedback. People want to teach through feedback. You know, I think you have a great idea, but. I think that was a great lesson, but. They want to teach the teacher through feedback. They want to give feedback forms. They want to do surveys so that the student can teach the teacher. I had a student one time who said, you know, I don't feel like I'm really learning enough in your class. And I said, really? (laughs) And I said, um... That's really... I'm so glad you noticed that. (laughs) And I said, guess what? If you go out the class, take a left, there's a library. If you want to learn more than what I'm teaching in class... Why are you not reading books? Instead of learning, he wants to teach me. Dr. Benton, you're not teaching right. Great. Guess what, student? You're not learning right. Go to the library and learn. This is the problem of the student who wants to teach the teacher. Yes, the teacher may, on the off chance, happen to learn something from a student, but it's not going to be on the feedback form. We understand. I want the listeners to understand that we understand that you can learn from anyone in any situation. We understand what you're saying. You don't understand what we're saying. And there's a big distinction. I'm coaching basketball for third and fourth graders. I've learned tons from interacting with these kids. So we're not saying what you're accusing us of saying, that we can't learn anything from other people. No. What we're saying is that in the teacher-student relationship, the teacher is immaterial, And the disciple is immaterial. If the student comes to class to teach the teacher, the student can't learn. Therefore, the student has stopped being a student. Therefore, the teacher cannot learn from the students because he's surrounded by half-wit students because they aren't actually learning anything and they don't know as much. And if the teacher comes with the attitude that I'm going to learn from my students, then the class is empty. I mean, you might gain a little bit that you would gain hanging out with your friends at the bar by talking to people. You know, being a consumer of ideas and, oh, isn't that interesting? That's a really deep thought you had. No, but we're not talking about deep thoughts. If the teacher comes to give deep thoughts, the class is empty. You come to share the material which existed before you were born and which will still be there after you are gone, which means you are not germane. Like our professor always says, the teacher reads a hundred books so he can say da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then maybe the student will be able to stand up and say, if the student wants to be relevant, then the student has to take on the burden of learning and reading the hundred books. If the student wants to be relevant to the teacher, then the student has to get up and take on the burden of being a teacher, not just sitting back in the class and seeing if he agrees or disagrees with what the teacher is saying. If the student wants the teacher to learn from him, then the student is being a bad student, is not being a student. And if the teacher wants the student to learn from him, the teacher is being a bad teacher. That's the rub. And this is at the heart of what Paul is talking about in chapter 8 because it's not enough to have the knowledge. You have to submit to the knowledge. 
And at the end of the day, in a consumer society, people view submission as being ontologically evil. And that is why, with respect to things that matter in everyday life, we are ignoramuses. Because you can have all of the knowledge and all of the enlightenment and all of the access to information in the world, but if you don't learn how to submit and to make yourself immaterial in any situation, you can't be wise. You can't. You have to give yourself over to wisdom. And it requires self-emptying, and people are no longer capable of it. And by self-emptying, I don't mean making 500 bows in church and going to a prayer service that's 15 hours long. That's building yourself up. By self-emptying, I mean being willing to listen to someone explain to you the data and to submit to what is being said, whether you agree or disagree, unto edification. You will always be entitled to your own point of view. No one can steal that from you. So what's the issue? Why can't you just soak in what's being said? You can take it or leave it. The Almighty God doesn't shove anything down anyone's throat in Scripture. Doesn't mean there aren't consequences for ignoring him, but he doesn't make his children listen. I think there's also a deep insecurity. People are not solid. And so when they encounter something solid, as C.S. Lewis says in his writing, it's an unbearable pain. It's an unbearable stress. How can someone be so sure of what they're saying? Well, it's simple. There's a book that we're here to talk about, and we've been studying it for going on 30 years since we were kids. And we didn't stop after church school. We kept going. And the more you work at it, the more you discover. And we've been going at it so long that whether we agree or disagree or you agree or disagree, we can talk about what it says. But the burden of knowledge is then teaching, whether you're in the mood to teach, you feel like teaching, or it's a pain to teach, or people aren't interested in listening to the teaching. You keep on teaching no matter what. So let's do that, Dr. Benton, with chapter let's eight. Let's keep going. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. That's the point we're saying. We know, Paul, we all have knowledge. Even disciples come to the discussion with some knowledge, varying degrees of knowledge. Knowledge, however, makes arrogant, but love edifies. So knowledge on its own will not edify. Knowledge on its own is a corrupting force, is an evil force, unless it's used in submission to love. What is the point of knowledge except submission? Now the key in scripture is that you learn to submit to others by submitting to the knowledge the teacher imparts. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the hierarchy of the Roman household as the pedagogical stick or whip of this point. We know that you don't like the Roman patrician we know that you think your dad is mean, but God put him there. And in this situation, Apollo was entrusted with the responsibility of maintaining a household church. So he might be mean, he might be arrogant, he might be a hypocrite, he might be whatever you think he is, he might not be willing to take your feedback, but will you demonstrate in 1 Corinthians your willingness to submit to God's teaching in the way you deal with 
those around you in the household, beginning with the patrician. If you can submit, then that knowledge becomes something that serves the cause of love. And the community. And the community. It doesn't serve you. You don't go to the house church in Apollo's residence to get something for yourself. You go to submit to the community at your own expense for the building up of love and community. This is what he's talking about. Your value is always in reference to or in function of your neighbor. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, if a teacher thinks he knows, he's a fool. He's ignorant. If a disciple thinks they have something to offer, they're a greater fool. How come they're not equally foolish, Father Mark? Because the teacher knows more. Everyone who's done research deeply into a subject knows that the more you study it, the less you know of it. The more answers you have, the more questions arise. And you and I know that the more we teach Scripture, the more we learn from Scripture. Not from each other. Not from each other and not from the students, but we learn from Scripture. By being students of Scripture, we learn. But then we put ourselves out there as teachers and submit to the community, and we give out this information for free that we've gained. But we would never say that, okay, now we know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And this very simply means what you, Richard, have said over and over again, that if you have the Spirit of God, it means that you are animated by the instruction. So God will recognize his children by how they conduct themselves, by what spirit they've received. That is what God knows, that mode of behavior. And I also love the play here on knowledge because what he's saying here is it's the great thing is not to know, but it's to be known. And to be known by God means that just like everything, it's not about what you know. It's not about who you know either. It's about who knows you. Anybody who knows anything, even today in our consumer society, knows that that's how networking works. That's what marketing's all about not who you know it's who you can get to notice you so you want to be noticed by god but the way to be noticed by god is ironically to be unnoticeable to human eyes therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no god but one and i love this it's very simple it's a basic scientific statement he's making and a basic theological statement too this is a great thing about this he's like Here's a theological statement we can all agree on. And then he's going to say, so what? Right, so it's describing the way things work that everybody knows there's no such thing as ghosts. And we know that the God of Abraham is God. Okay. Okay, we all know that. Great. Yeah, you're so smart. And you figured no- it out. Yes, and we already know that knowledge only leads to arrogance. So let's see where he goes with this. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, so he's not even like clinging to the science here. Okay, we all know there's no such thing as ghosts, but let's just assume that there are ghosts. As indeed, there are many gods and lords. So while we don't believe in ghosts, we know that the leaders and the teachers and the people in the church in Roman Corinth are among the many gods and lords. That's the dig. He's saying there's no such thing as ghosts, but there's such a thing as jerks and self-righteous people and arrogant people who want to give Paul feedback. Well, and it's the same way as saying, okay, we know that there are many lords. We know that there's a Caesar. We know that Caesar has control over things. We know that there's a Venus and a Mercury and that sort of thing. But you know what? We don't care. There's one God. Yeah, for us there is but one God. The Father, 
from whom are all things and we exist for him. That's why whether he notices us is the issue. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. So he's saying, okay, look, I know you think you are something and you have some knowledge, but let me just remind you there's a pecking order and you're not even number three or number four in the chain. You've got God, you've got Zeus, you've got Apollo, you've got Caesar, you've got the governor, and then you've got us guys. <laughs> However, not all men have this knowledge. Now here's the beauty, right now they're thinking, well, yes, we have this knowledge, Paul, but the others don't have this knowledge. They're not enlightened like and us. We're t- and we have this knowledge, <laughs> so therefore we can use this knowledge as a, as a club. But what Paul is saying is that you don't have this knowledge. How can someone who thinks they have the knowledge give Paul feedback? And it's not because Paul is smarter than his disciples. They might be smarter than him. They might know way more than him. That's not the issue. Because ultimately we don't share data in church in order to broaden your database. We share data in church in order to smash your database so that we can get about the business of loving each other. Everybody has to step down from the omphone, including the preacher, and look up at the gospel. And I don't mean that philosophically where we all hold hands and no one talks in church. I'm talking about where the authority lies in church. And someone has to wield that power. This is where people are lost today and why even people who have a kind of light, a kind of knowledge, are unwise or are unable to convey wisdom because of this fundamental core dysfunction in our Western consumer society. But... Some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So, there are some in the community of ignorance, which ranges from the least to the greatest. In that spectrum of people who think they have knowledge but don't, there are people who are in a worse condition, who have a frail conscience, who still believe in ghosts. There's no such thing as ghosts, but some people still believe in ghosts. And we have to understand, if we care about them as part of the body of Christ, that while it's our duty to help them grow in the gospel so that one day maybe they wouldn't believe in ghosts, right now the issue is they do. So we have to take care how we relate to them and minister to them, or else they might fall in the trap of worshiping Venus, who doesn't exist, which becomes for them a reality. And since you're the one who's causing them to worship Venus, Guess who the man behind the curtain is? You. So that's the beauty of the nuance of this argument. Yes, there's no such thing as Venus, but if someone in the church makes themselves into a Venus or a Zeus, they are like in The Wizard of Oz, the guy standing behind the hoax, pulling the strings, while these poor people are eating meat offered to Venus and actually believe it has power. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So Paul here is saying there, those of weaker conscience are wrong. It doesn't matter if you eat or you don't eat. It doesn't matter. It's just a piece of meat. And for those who have knowledge, eating in your knowledge is not going to make you better. Circumcision 101. We're going to start calling it C101. That's what this is. But take care that this liberty of yours... Notice, he's not critiquing the one of weaker conscience. That's my point. Because the one of weaker conscience has the lesser sin. They are not making themselves a god. They are submitting to the false gods in the church. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple 
Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat the thing sacrificed to idols? You know it's just a piece of meat. They think it's food offered to Venus. If they follow your example or see what you're doing carelessly, you may lead them to think that it's okay to worship Venus and we've got a problem. You're also teaching that it's okay to disregard the weaker brother. How can you be puffed up and excited about your knowledge when your knowledge forces you, when your knowledge motivates you to ignore the weaker brother? This is exactly it. If the community is going to survive, if the community is most important, if keeping the community together and not dividing it is most important, then disregarding the weaker brother is the worst thing you can do. And if this is the teaching you propagate through your eating, then you're destroying the community. Why? Because of your knowledge. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother is ruined for whose sake Christ died. Now here, I want to be clear. This is not about people being fragile. People are not fragile. People are stubborn and arrogant and resilient in their stubborn arrogance and they are self-righteous. So Paul's not worried about you hurting someone who's delicate. Just dispense and excise this false teaching that people need to be pampered. The weakness is in the weakness of conscience. Someone with a weak conscience can still be a monster. So they aren't victims. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that because of your arrogance, their ignorance is amplified. And you, who supposedly have knowledge, have a greater responsibility to the ignorant, and you're causing them to stumble. What 1 Corinthians 8 does not mean, it does not mean that you pacify someone's superstition. Mm -hmm. If someone comes to me and says, Father Mark, I had a dream, I asked them what they had for dinner and why they were restless. If they persist in wanting to talk about their dream, I tell them it's in their head. If they push harder to talk about the contents of their dream, I ask them, show me in scripture where it says what your dream says. If it's in scripture, then we don't need your dream. If it isn't in scripture, then we don't want your dream. I'm not going to gently try to work around the fact that they still believe in dreams and, I mean, whatever people concoct in their head. I'm not going to be gentle. It's false. It's absolutely false. It is false teaching. It is self-involved, superstitious nonsense. There is no such thing as Venus except in your head, which is why this is just a piece of meat. People will interpret this as saying, well, if people really believe in Venus, we should tiptoe around them. And it's like believing in Santa Claus. You don't want to hurt their feelings. Paul's not talking about hurting their feelings. He's talking about them persisting in their ignorance. And that is a critical point pastorally. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Because you make Christ's crucifixion void for that person. Because Christ died so that that person can be in a community where everyone is submitting to one another, submitting to the will of God, submitting to the community in order to serve one another. If now you, through your knowledge, reject and ignore the concerns of the weaker brother, then why did Christ die anyway? If you want a, a community where everyone abuses each other and the people with power and knowledge are the ones at the top and look down their nose at everybody else, you could go to any house in the Roman Empire and you could have that. That's not what Christ came and died for. He died so that there could be a community where the one who is broken, the one who submits, is the one who is the head. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, 
I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul is more willing to transgress his knowledge than to transgress love. He is more willing to transgress what he knows than in any circumstance hurt someone who is weaker. Thank you very much, Dr. Benton. Great episode. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.